0: Friends, please take your Bibles now and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, or if you're using the little pew Bibles, the little hardback ones on the back of the pew or chair in front of you, you'll find what we're going to look at today on page 237. 237. If you want to make a compelling case for something, if you've got a point that you want to land, you want it to get through to somebody else... Sometimes the best way to do it is to draw a contrast. This, not that. How do you know to buy bounty paper towels instead of the cheaper store brand option? You know to buy bounty because it's the quicker picker-upper. That's a contrast. You know the commercials. Little Billy throwing a ball in the house like he's not supposed to do. Little Billy's ball knocks over dad's glass of red wine on the coffee table. The dark and staining flood is moving ever closer to the edge of that table over over which it it hangs over this this surprisingly, shockingly white carpet. (laughs) You've got Billy in your house. What are you doing with that white carpet? Dad, red wine on a coffee table in the living room with Billy nearby. But be that as it may, the flood is coming. Mom grabs The store brand paper towel rips off a few squares, goes to the stain, and what happens? You know what happens. It just sort of moves the wine around. It doesn't absorb it at all. It disintegrates in her hand as that flood reaches its destination, ruining the rug forever. Or mom grabs that two-ply roll of quicker picker-upper. Rips off the squares of bounty, attacks the moving flood, and it's gone in an instant. No more stain, no more flood. Bounty, the quicker picker upper, gets the job done. Or, I, I'm not a, I'm gonna use a little more highbrow illustration here, see if this one works. I, I personally don't understand art that well. Um, but there is a section of an art museum, if I'm in one, where I tend to get the point and fairly quickly. I like to go into the, the rooms where they have the, the Rembrandt paintings and all the people who tried to copy him. I can understand the point of those paintings. I mean, normally in an art museum, I'm just going around reading one sign after another, barely looking at the paintings because I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> you know, like I want to read, what am I supposed to notice about this? What is this guy going for and how he painted this painting? I don't have to read the signs for Rembrandt because it's just obvious. He used contrast like crazy. I mean, basically every painting, that's how he's doing it. He's got a really dark background. And then he's famous for the way he uses light. For the way that he uses color on the background that's so dark to pop out the thing he wants you to notice. He wants your eyes going straight there when you look at his canvas. Google it after we're done here. Google it. And you'll see what I'm saying if you haven't noticed this before. Rembrandt, anybody can follow his point. Because Rembrandt's great with contrast. And one of, the, one of the clues to the meaning of the Bible's stories, and this is a big picture thing, not just for our story today. If you want to know how to read the Bible stories and get what you're supposed to get out of them. One of the most important things you can look for as you come to a story is how the characters play off of one another. What is the contrast that's being drawn between one character and another or another group of characters? Often, this is how the Bible storytellers will clue us in to what we're supposed to take. And that's the key to understanding the section of Scripture we've come to today. In fact, we've seen this technique before many times already in looking through First and Second Samuel. We've been watching as David has been emerging onto the scene in Israel's life. And often the way that David is explained to us, the way he's been introduced to us from the beginning has been in a thick contrast to other leadership options in Israel's life. I mean, the, the, the whole story, the backdrop was the book of the Judges which happens right before 1 and 2 Samuel and the line that gets repeated over and over in the book of Judges to sum up what life was like back then, there's no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel. And when there's no king in Israel, might makes right. One power figure after another comes through to make their own name and their own fortune on the backs of Israel's people. That's Judges, that's the backdrop. Think of that as this dark canvas. Things don't get better right away when 1 Samuel opens. Samuel is showing us there uh, the, 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 the judges who were ruling at the time that, that that story opens were just like the ones that we saw play out in the book of Judges. You had Eli, he was a pretty nice guy, but his sons were the ones calling all the shots. And they were using their positions of power and the authority they claimed from God's name to exploit people, even in the temple. Saul, for example, the first king that shows up on the scene, he's a selfish king. He's grasping. He's grasping. He's insecure. He's always looking to improve his own position, even when he's got to bull those other people to get it. Meanwhile, while those leadership as usual options have been playing out for us in this story, David has been slowly rising like a loaf of bread in the oven. David is getting ready for his moment. From chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we've known that he was destined for the throne. God anoints him through his prophet Samuel when he's just a boy. And a boy so insignificant, his own father didn't think to call him in from the fields for the lineup. Since that time, we've watched him as he stood tall against Goliath. And and, and what was going on before he showed up on the scene? Every single one of Israel's heroes had shrunk back in fear. The contrast between the shepherd boy who stands tall and the tall king who's hiding in the tents is meant to make David pop off the page. We've seen David wait patiently for the Lord to deliver on the promise of a throne, even though in reality he's been running from one cave to another out in the wilderness, while Saul, on the other hand, is just pursuing one angle after another to cling to power for as long as he can. The contrasts have been all over this story. And now, now in the section we've come to this morning, Israel is in crisis. Saul is dead. And David finally becomes king over all of Israel. But only through years of civil war first. At the beginning of our text this morning, David becomes king over, all Israel, over, over Judah. rather. At the end of our text, he becomes king over all of Israel. And in between those two points, civil war, during which Israel's people are tearing themselves apart. It's been said that crisis reveals character. That in a moment of crisis, you see what's really going on under the surface. That crisis is like a throwing back of the curtains to someone's heart so you can see what, what really matters to them, what they're really pursuing in life. And that's certainly the function of this crisis and this story for this picture we're meant to see of David. The crisis is Israel's power vacuum Israel's civil war after Saul has been killed and in that crisis what we're shown is David and what he wants against the backdrop of three other characters and what they want in fact from from chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 5 most of the attention isn't actually on David it's on these other characters but at each point When David is shown to us, we see him acting in decisive ways that reveal his character to us in direct contrast to the other characters that get most of the airtime in this section. So here's what we want to do this morning. I want to walk you through these several chapters by showing you three contrasts, one right after the other. What we see is David popping out of the light against the back drop of what we see in these other characters one by one. And I want to begin by just reading the first few verses of chapter 2. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read chapter 2, verse 1 through the first half of verse 4. This is God's word. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah and the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. You may be seated. Three contrasts this morning to draw out the beauty of this leader that God is giving to his people. This king after God's own heart. Here's contrast number one. David wants to obey the Lord. Abner wants to promote himself. Contrast number one. David wants to obey the Lord. Abner wants to promote himself. Let's look at David first. It's in the verses we've just read together. And it's a stunning way to open this section. The first thing that happens after news of Saul's death is that David asks the Lord what to do next. And just think about this with me for just a second. Think about the backdrop here. David has been promised that he's going to be king over Israel. That happened a long, long, long time ago by this point in David's young life. Years earlier, he'd received this promise. He's been patiently waiting. He waited when Saul's jealousy booted him out of the house. He waited out in the wilderness as he ran from one cave to another, step ahead of Saul's army. He waited when he had not one, but two chances to kill Saul out there in the wilderness. He waited. And now finally, the throne that God promised to him is empty. And it's because somebody else killed Saul, not him. His hands are clean. What would you expect David to do next? I'd expect him to step on up to the throne and take a seat. I'd expect him to step right into that vacuum and fill it. I would expect him to finally take what God promised him, to think, great, no more waiting. Clearly, this is what God wants from me for now, right? Wrong. David asked the Lord for wisdom. We don't know exactly what this looked at like when, as verse 1 says, David inquired of the Lord. I mean, we know from earlier stories, he had a priest with him, Abiathar, He had a special tool that God had given to his people for seeking God's will. Maybe that's what they used, we don't know. But way more important than than how this looked is the sheer fact that David wanted to ask the Lord what to do next. He asks whether to leave the area of the Philistines where he'd been hiding out and go up to Judah. God says, yes. Then he asks specifically, where should I go in Judah? God tells him Hebron. And as soon as God tells him where to go, He goes, he takes all his people, he goes to Hebron and he makes it his home. Even now, in his moment of triumph, at every step, David just wants to obey. He's a leader, in other words, who knows that he's not in charge, not ultimately. He is a king who knows that God is God and that he is accountable to him. I think this, this posture of David pops out even more when you compare him to leadership as usual in Israel's life. So now let's shift our camera's focus off of David and his desire to obey. Even in the midst of a power vacuum, he could easily fill on his own initiative. Over to Abner, who is the other character that's most prominent in the chapters we're going to look at this morning. He is David's most important counterpart in these stories. Abner was Saul's main general. And on Saul's side, Abner's the one who steps into the vacuum after Saul's death to try to hold those northern tribes together. We've been seeing Abner pop up in the story already. He was there when David took on Goliath. Not sure why he didn't think to do it himself, but he was there to watch it. He was at Saul's side at the dinner table when David didn't show up back during Jonathan and David's trick to figure out where Saul's heart really was. And he was with Saul in the wilderness when David snuck up and stole his spear and his water jug. He's the one that David called out for that. How would you let this happen to your Lord? And now he's the one calling the shots as soon as Saul is laid to rest. It is Abner who chooses Saul's successor. Look with me at verse 8 of chapter 2. Abner, the son of Nur, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Abner made him king. Do you see these verbs and the aggressiveness behind them? Abner took Ishbosheth. Abner brought him to where he wanted him to be. And Abner made him king over all Israel. Abner's calling the shots. ish is just a, a weak, hesitant, ineffective leader all the way through this story. And he only lasts on the throne as long as Abner keeps pulling his puppet strings. It's Abner who leads the army out to face David's general in the next section of chapter 2. It's Abner who goes toe-to-toe with Joab at the beginning of this bitter civil war. And there's no question, Abner is a capable and effective leader. He's brave. He's basically the only effective leader left in the north of Israel. But but what's he fighting for now? What's he really after? What does he care about in this crisis? What do we see of his heart? For that, we need to flip ahead to chapter 3. Look with me at verse one. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. David's getting stronger. Saul's house is fading out with one major exception. Look at verse six. While there was war between the house of Saul and And the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. See what he's doing? He's the one who made Ishbosheth king, but underneath the cover of that puppet king, he's making himself strong. He is his own agenda. What looks like loyalty to the house of Saul is really loyalty to his own brand. And that comes out with undeniable clarity in the next few verses. Look at verse 7. Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet, you charge me today with fault concerning a woman. What's going on here? Well, Abner is accused. That's very simple and clear. He's accused of going into one of Saul's concubines, a concubine who was a mistress. Part of a harem that was very typical for ancient kings to have. The harem would would symbolize their power and their virility and their rule over their people. Saul had gone the way of ancient kings. He had disobeyed God's law. He had kept this harem for himself. And if Abner had slept with one of the king's concubines, on top of violating the seventh commandment against adultery, and on top of violating the dignity of that woman. It would have been a powerful political statement too. I do what I want around here. ish may sit on the throne, but this kingdom belongs to me. That's why ish is so worked up about it. And Abner for his part, he's only outraged at the implication that he's done anything wrong. He doesn't deny that he's done it. In fact, the text leads us to believe he did do it. He's, he's upset because he's been accused of wrongdoing. Though he claims that he's shown loyalty to Saul up to now, it's clear his loyalty only lasts as long as he's getting what he's really looking for. He sees himself as the only reason Ishbosheth has a throne to sit on. And if Ishbosheth is going to be picky about what benefits he seeks from this kingdom, he's going to go find himself a different king to serve. Look at verses 9 and 10. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. This is stunning. Abner is showing right here that that he knows the Lord has already sworn to make David king. That means as long as he's been fighting to keep David off the throne, he knows he's been fighting against the Lord. He has known for all these years what God wants, and he's opposed to it. And not only that, he's opposing God not because of deep rooted loyalty to Saul that he just can't let go of, he's only stayed with Saul because it strengthened his own position. And now that he's challenged, he switches his loyalty over to David. Assuming he can as easily make David king as he made Ishbosheth king. He thinks he's still pulling the strings. And now he's just gonna pull them for David instead of for, for Saul's house. And what do you say about somebody who switches sides after a challenge like this one? What you'd say is that he was never fighting for Saul in the first place. He was only ever fighting for himself. He believes he's in control the whole time And he's aiming his influence at beefing up his own position. Verse 12 sums up what he does next. He sends messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Implication, to me. Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Okay. What does our author want us to notice? by setting David's obedience to God over against Abner's self-promotion. What are we supposed to take out of this contrast? We're supposed to see that David is the sort of leader everybody needs and Abner is the sort of leader to avoid. Abner is absolutely the sort of leader to avoid. He is a living and breathing and walking and talking embodiment of pride. Watch out for leaders like this. Abner doesn't care what God wants. He knows what God wants and he sets himself against it. He doesn't ultimately even care who wins this war. What does he care about? He cares who worships him. He's the politician without principles. The one who switches parties and policies, no problem, just as long as they can stay in the headlines. All he wants is to be above the fold in the public eye. He cares about his reputation and his influence. That's it. But David, and there's the sort of leader everybody needs. One who knows better than to think power and opportunity are an excuse to do whatever he wants in the first place. One who knows that he's accountable, that he is accountable ultimately to God, Friends, our, our need for leaders like David is one reason that we often pray for government leaders in our city and in our state and in our nation and in other nations all around the world. We, we, I hope you've noticed as we pray for government leaders, really the, the, the main prayer that we pray is that they'll be humble, <laughs> that the Lord will help them to know their limits. I mean, we're not looking for their help in establishing the kingdom of God. We know that God is on that. And he's doing that in his time and in his way through his chosen king, Jesus. And it's showing up now in our life together as a church. We don't expect the kingdoms of this world to look like the kingdom of God's son. Not really. Not yet. But we absolutely want leaders who know they don't know everything. And leaders who know they can't just do anything they want. Leaders who know they're accountable. So we pray for them. We need leaders like this in our church too. One of the key passages in the Bible about pastors or elders is 1 Peter 5. It's a passage that reminds pastors that this flock they lead belongs to God. So don't be after what you can gain, Peter says. And don't be domineering over the people that you lead. And and, and after that whole passage on pastoral ministry, the last statement that he makes is, clothe yourselves with humility. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the kind of leaders that as members of Edgefield, you're asked to nominate and to affirm as elders in our church. It's the kind of leaders that you want to pray for, God to continue to raise up. And it's the kind of leadership you want to pray that he'll, that he'll give to those who are already serving as leaders despite their own sins and their own blindness. For that matter, we all want to be people like this too, don't we? And when we're facing decisions, especially when we're facing opportunities that are there for the taking, we want to check our hearts every single time. We don't want to assume that just because we could do something and just because we want to do something, we should do something. We want to be people who look to the Lord first. What pleases Him? What has He said that speaks into this decision I'm facing? Not necessarily through some sort of voice from the sky or casting lots on the earth, but through things that he's given us to learn from him. Things he's already said he'll use to help us understand him through his word, through prayer, through, through Christian friends who pay close attention and have wisdom to offer. We want to be people who go to God like David did for obedience because that's what matters most to us. There's a second contrast that shows us even more about David and even more about the leadership we need as Christians. Contrast number two, David seeks peace, Joab seeks vengeance. David seeks peace, Joab seeks vengeance. The next major contrast is between David and his own chief commander, Abner's rival in David's army, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Uh, For for David's side of this contrast, this this character that the author is showing us, there's several different places we could look in this story, but I want you to jump with me right back to the very beginning of the section, back to chapter two, just after David's house is settled in Hebron. Read with me again back in chapter two, verse four. The men of Judah came. There they anointed David king over the house of Judah. We've seen that. Now look what happens next. When When they told David... It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, Let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What's this about? Well, you need to know that this town, Jabesh Gilead, the reason it matters so much is that it is the city that Saul rescued at the very beginning of the story about Saul. His sort of coming out party on the scene in Israel. Israel was him leading an army to rescue Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites when they had been conquered. And Jabesh-Gilead's people did not forget that Saul had done this for them. This was a city with deep loyalty to Saul. So when Saul killed in battle, when the Philistines dismember his body and hang his body from the city walls at one of their towns as a display of just how powerful they, their armies are, the people of Jabesh-Gilead get word of that and they're not going to stand by as long as that's happening. They go at night. They cut down the bodies. They bring them back to their town, and they bury Saul, giving him the honor that they believe he deserves. Now someone from Judah tells David, who's just been anointed king in Judah, that it's Jabesh Gilead who showed loyalty to Saul even after Saul was dead. Loyalty to Saul who hated David loyalty to Saul who wanted David dead. Now what do you expect a newly crowned king would say to supporters of his rival at a time like this? I might would expect him to say something like, hey, while you're doing the grave digging, may as well go ahead and dig a mass grave for yourselves too because you're next. Next. Or I might expect him to say it's a little more generous than that. Hey, you backed the wrong horse. Now pay up. There's a new king in town or else. Or maybe at best, I would expect him to say something like, hey, it serves you right, you fools, for staying with that madman. I hope you learned your lesson now. You'd expect him one way or another to put them in their place because they failed to acknowledge his place. He should want vindication in this city. But did you see what he actually tells them? He blesses them for their loyalty to his enemy. He asks the Lord to show them the same faithfulness they showed Saul. And he even promised, on top of all that, he even promises that he will be good to them, to those who were so good to his enemy Precisely because of how they cared for his enemy. They have lost and he shows them grace. Why would he do that? What does this crisis reveal about his character? He cares more about peace among God's people than he cares about vindication for himself. That's what it shows us. Now I'll compare David's posture to the posture of his main man, Joab. Chapter 2 tells of the initial clashes between Joab's army and Abner's men. There are losses on both sides, just like in all civil wars. But on balance, Joab's side is winning and things are going well for him until things get really personal really fast when Abner kills his brother, Azahel. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 2. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now Azahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Azahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men. Take his spoil. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. Joab and his brothers pursue Abner for a time before calling off the search. But he does not forget what has happened here. Fast forward with me to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we've already seen Abner switches loyalty from Saul's house to David's. Abner sends a message to David that he's going to do it and actually goes then and meets with David. They share a meal together. David is willing to accept Abner's help in getting the war to a conclusion and bringing all of Israel to his kingdom. But while all this is going down, Joab is out on a raid. He doesn't know anything about Abner's visit. He's not clued into what's happening while he's gone. And when he comes back, he's shocked. He's shocked that David would break bread with this enemy. And even hearing that David has made an arrangement with him, Joab is going to have nothing to do with it. He doesn't care that David has made peace with Abner. He remembers what Abner has done. Now look with me chapter 3 verse 22 Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid bringing much spoil with them but Abner was not with David at Hebron for he'd sent him away and he had gone in peace When Joab and all the army that was with him came it was told Joab Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he's let him go and he's gone in peace Then Joab went to the king and said What have you done Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing? When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David didn't know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who's leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner. Because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. This is treachery. That's how we're meant to read this story. Joab had good reason to be upset at Abner, but rather than face him head on, he tricks him and pounces when he's not expecting it. And besides the fact that he sneaks up on Abner to kill him, it's even worse. Joab's blind to the bigger picture. He's blind to what's going on in this moment. All that's bigger than him. He should have honored the will of his king. David had made it clear he wanted peace, even if that meant an agreement or an arrangement with Abner. Joab doesn't care. Joab should have rejoiced at the fact that now David, his guy, the one he's been spending all this time trying to to advance, can finally rule over all Israel. Isn't that what he's been fighting for? It's now possible. Joab should have embraced this peace that's been negotiated, not just because it's good for David, but because it's good for the people they're supposedly there to serve. This will mean no more war, no more battle, no more killing. Joab sees none of that. Joab just sees red. Joab sees his brother slain by the hands of this enemy and all he cares about is vengeance. That's why David rebukes him. That's why David goes on to mourn over Abner publicly. This is not how it's supposed to go. What is our author showing us in this contrast? I think it's pretty simple. Joab's violence is all about him. It's not happening in battle. It's not to protect the people. It's just personal. He's reacting the way you'd expect somebody in power to react when they've been wronged. But, but, but David... David is not afraid to go to battle when he has to, but his heart belongs to peace. David cares more about the peace and the unity of God's people than he cares about being vindicated personally. So friends, I wonder, when you've been wronged by somebody, what do you see as your goal? What do you see as your role in what happens next? It's common these days to to hear as if your talk as if as if we actually have a duty in these situations to stand up for ourselves. Like if we don't, then who will? As if forgiveness is unhealthy. As if forgiveness can be unsafe. I don't know that I've ever felt the need to stand up for myself in just that way, to make somebody apologize or to make amends. I do know that in conflict I have often felt misjudged by people and I've often kept pressing harder hoping they would see me the way I see me when I've had the chance to just back off and let it go. I do know that that sometimes I've been convicted that how the desire to be seen in a better light keeps tension alive rather than putting it to rest. When just trusting the Lord to judge would have put things at ease. And helped us move on. David here, he, he is the man after God's own heart. He knows that the peace of God's people is God's priority. That it is precious to God. And therefore it's, it's precious to David. And we want it to be precious to us as a church. This is why we pray the way Jonathan prayed earlier. That, that, that conflicts would not live on among us, that we would all be on the same page about getting on the same page, on the same page about the importance of peace among us as a people. It's one reason that we promise in our church covenant that we're gonna be slow to take offense, quick to seek reconciliation when we have to. And above all of that, our goal is to show each other the same grace that God has shown to us. Because we know the unity of God's people matters To the God who matters to us. It is literally what Jesus prayed for hours before he was tortured and killed. That's not what was on his mind, what he was about to go through. What was on his mind was the unity of the people he was about to die for. He wanted them at peace, he wanted the world to see who he is by how they love one another in his name. And if our church is marked by this heart after God's own heart, we'll be a church that loves peace more than we love vindication. Friends, there's one final contrast I want to leave you with this morning. One more contrast between characters in this story that helps us see the kind of leader we need, the kind of leader we want to learn from, and ultimately the kind of leader to lean on. Contrast number three is this. David... Binds himself to his people. But Bana and Rehab barter Ishbosheth for reward. David binds himself to his people. Banah and Rehab barter Ishbosheth for reward. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Sorry about that. Those are the names we're dealing with. Uh, th- th- this, is, this is a contrast that actually starts with the what not to be. Benah and Rahab are two leaders in Saul's army who have been out on raids amongst the people trying to get what they can during this term, time of turmoil. But when Abner falls, it's clear to them that Ishbosheth's days are numbered. He knows this. He's stressed about it. Chapter 4, verse 1 makes that clear. And all Israel is dismayed. Another crisis, another power vacuum. What will happen? What will his captains want in this situation? Look at verse five. The sons of Ramon the Burethite, Rechab and Benah, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. You notice in a the theme here, a lot of murder in these stories. A lot of people taking their own initiative to put an end to other people. Then Rahab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, "Here, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring." And we're not told anything about what was going on in the minds and hearts of these two thugs. We don't know what words passed between them. We don't know exactly what motives drove them to this gruesome murder. But it isn't difficult to imagine, is it? They've been making their lives as raiders for Ishbosheth. They could wait and go down with his ship because it's clear he's headed down. Or they could take him out themselves and get some favor from the new boss. These guys are opportunists. They see the opening and they take it. And just like Abner and his shifting loyalties, just like Joab and his personal vengeance, these two guys care above all about themselves. They think they can trade in ish head for a bigger slice of David's freshly baked pie. Pardon the mixed metaphors. They even spin this as God's will, as if they're God's agents doing God's work for God's new king. But they have vastly misunderstood the heart of the king that they now come to. Look at verse 9. David answered Rahab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Beerethite As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. They assumed David was business as usual and that what's good for David's throne would be rewarded handsomely from David's purse. David is not business as usual. That is nowhere more obvious than in the final two ver- few verses of our text. One that uh, These verses in some ways tie together the whole picture of David we've been looking at all along. He's victorious. He's the one with all the power. But when his former enemies come to him with their allegiance, he's the one who makes promises of how he'll care for them. Look at verse one of chapter five. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, We are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel you see what's happening here? They are affirming that they belong together as if they hadn't just been his enemies. They are reminding him of all his goodness to them, defending them from their enemies as if they hadn't been fighting against him all along. And they're citing the role God has called him to, the shepherd God would make him to be. It's all coming full circle from David as shepherd of his father's sheep to David as shepherd of God's people. But they have been his enemies up to now. What does David do when they come pledging their allegiance? Verse 3. David makes a covenant with them. David acts on his initiative to bind himself to promises for their welfare. Rather than put his demands on them, he commits himself to them. Where guys like Benah and Rehab were business as usual. I want as much as I can take from this situation. David comes giving. From beginning to end. As David comes to his throne, he's not thinking of himself at all. He doesn't do what seems right to him. He wants to obey. He doesn't demand vindication, though he's been wronged. He just wants peace. And he doesn't barter for more of those with no power to resist him. He binds himself to the good of those who had one time wished him ill. That's David. That's the leader God is giving to his people by his grace. That's the kind of leader we need. Friends, ultimately, this story is not here to just make us wistful for Israel's days under David's rule. This story of overall is about to take a a bad turn. David doesn't stay this holy. David is a great model for us here, but not for much longer. And the story even here where David is looking good is only meant to point us to a greater leader that we need. One that God has given to us ultimately in David's greater son, Jesus. Jesus came to his throne through obedience, just like David did. We began our service this morning with Philippians 2, which celebrates Jesus as the one who emptied himself. He didn't grasp At equality with God, he emptied himself and was obedient all the way to point of death on a cross. That's why he's exalted now. That's why every knee will bow to him. It was Jesus, ultimately, who, like David, made peace his top priority. He came to reconcile all to himself, to bring peace with God and peace with one another through the blood of his cross. That's how precious peace is to him. Forget about personal vindication. Nobody has ever been more mistreated. No one has ever been more badly misjudged than Jesus was. And he ate it all and went gladly to the cross so he could reconcile us to God. And Jesus, like David, didn't just come to barter his way into a bigger slice of all this world has to offer. Jesus came to promise everything to those who trust him. In a covenant written in his own blood. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, a shepherd over God's people. And in John 10, he was clear about what he means. He makes himself clear through his contrasts. The thief, he said, comes only to to steal and kill and destroy. I'm not a thief. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came to give. The hired hand, he says, sees danger coming and gets out of there as soon as what he hoped to get is outpaced by what he'll cost him to hang in there. The hired hand, he doesn't have steadfast love to anyone but himself. He flees, Jesus said, because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. To win Jesus, that good shepherd, says to us, come to me and take my yoke upon you. He is telling us to put on the yoke. With Christ as king, you go where he commands, not where you, what, what seems right in your own eyes. But that yoke is easy. That burden is light because he carries the weight. And when we take on that yoke, we take on the yoke of one who is gentle with us in our weakness. Lowly in heart like King David was. One we can trust for rest in our souls. Would you pray with me now that the Lord will give us hope and peace and rest in this King. Father, we long to experience this kind of leadership in our lives. We ask you to help us to trust and obey your King, our good shepherd, And we ask that you would protect us through these contrasts in this story from trusting ourselves to business as usual. Thank you for Jesus, whose light shines in our darkness. Help us to trust him now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.